Shane by Jack Schaefer, Chapter 9 Another period of peace had settled over our valley. Since the night Shane rode into town, Fletcher's cowboys had quit using the road past the homesteads. They were not annoying us at all, and only once in a while was there a rider in view across the river. They had a good excuse to let us be. They were busy fixing the ranch buildings and pulling a big new corral in preparation for the spring drive of new cattle Fletcher was planning. Just the same, I noticed that Father was as watchful as Shane now. The two of them worked always together. They did not split any more to do separate jobs in different parts of the farm. They worked together, rode into town together when anything was needed. And Father took to wearing his gun all the time even in the fields. He strapped it on after breakfast the first morning following the fight with Chris, and I saw him catch Shane's eye with a questioning glance as he buckled the belt. But Shane shook his head, and Father nodded, accepting the decision, and they went out together without saying a word. Those were beautiful fall days, clear and stirring, with the coolness in the air just enough to set one a-tingling, not yet mounting to the bitter cold that soon would come sweeping down out of the mountains. It did not seem possible that in such a harvest season, giving a lift to the spirit to match the well-being of the body, violence could flare so suddenly and swiftly. Saturday evenings, all of us would pile into the light work wagon, father and mother on the seat, Shane and I swinging legs at the rear, and go into town. It was the break-in routine we looked forward to all week. There was always a bustle in Grafton's store, with people we knew coming and going. Mother would lay in her supplies for the week ahead, taking a long time about it, and chatting with the women folk. She and the wives of the other homesteaders were great ones for swapping recipes, and this was their bartering ground. Father would give Mr. Grafton his order for what he wanted, and go direct for the mail. He was always getting catalogs of farm equipment and pamphlets from Washington. He would flip through their pages and skim through any letters, then settle on a barrel and spread out his newspaper. But like as not, he would soon be bogged down in an argument with almost any man handy about the best crops for the territory, and it would be Shane who would really work his way into the newspaper. I used to explore the store— filling myself with crackers from the open barrel at the end of the main counter, playing hide-and-seek with Mr. Grafton's big and knowing old cat that was a whiz of a mouser. Many a time, turning up boxes, I chased out fat furry ones for her to pounce on. If Mother was in the right mood, I would have a bag of candy in my pocket. This time we had a special reason for staying longer than usual, a reason I did not like. Our school teacher, Jane Grafton, had made me take a note home to Mother, asking her to stop in for a talk. About me. I never was too smart at formal schooling to begin with. Being all excited over the doings at the big ranch and what they might mean to us had not helped any. Miss Grafton, I guess, just sort of endured me under the best of conditions. But what tipped her into being downright annoyed and writing to Mother was the weather. No one could expect a boy with any spirit in him to be shut up in a schoolroom in weather like we had been having. 
Twice that week, I had persuaded Ollie Johnson to sneak away with me after the lunch hour to see if the fish were still biting in our favorite pool below town. Mother finished the last item on her list, looked around at me, sighed a little, and stiffened her shoulders. I knew she was going to the living quarters behind the store to talk to Miss Grafton. I squirmed and pretended I did not notice her. Only a few people were left in the store, though the saloon in the adjoining big room was doing fair business. She went over to where Father was leafing through a catalog and tapped him. "'Come along, Joe. You should hear this, too. I declare, that boy is getting too big for me to handle.' Father glanced quickly over the store and paused, listening to the voices from the next room. We had not seen any of Fletcher's men all evening, and he seemed satisfied. He looked at Shane, who was folding the newspaper. "'This won't take long. We'll be out in a moment.' As they passed through the door at the rear of the store, Shane strolled to the saloon opening. He took in the whole room in his easy, alert way and stepped inside. I followed. But I was supposed not ever to go in there, so I stopped at the entrance. Shane was at the bar, joshing Will Atke with a grave face that he didn't think he'd have a soda pop tonight. It was a scattered group in the room, most of them from around town and familiar to me by sight at least. Those close to Shane moved a little away, eyeing him curiously. He did not appear to notice. He picked up his drink and savored it, one elbow on the bar, not shoving himself forward into the room's companionship, and not withdrawing either, just ready to be friendly if anyone wanted that, and unfriendly if anyone wanted that too. I was letting my eyes wander about, trying to tag names to faces, when I saw that one of the swinging doors was partly open, and Red Marlin was peeking in. Shane saw it too. But he could not see that more men were out on the porch, for they were close by the building wall and on the store side. I could sense them through the window near me, hulking shapes in the darkness. I was so frightened I could scarcely move. But I had to. I had to go against Mother's rule. I scrambled into the saloon and to Shane, and I gasped, "'Shane, there's a lot of them out front!' I was too late. Red Marlin was inside, and the others were hurrying in and fanning out to close off the store opening. Morgan was one of them his flat face sour and determined, his huge shoulders almost filling the doorway as he came through. Behind him was the cowboy they called Curly because of his shock of unruly hair. He was stupid and slow-moving, but he was thick and powerful, and he had worked in harness with Chris for several years. Two others followed them, new men to me, with the tough, experienced look of old herd hands. There was still the back office, with its outside door opening on a side stoop and the rear alley. My knees were shaking, and I tugged at Shane and tried to say something about it. He stopped me with a sharp gesture. His face was clear, his eyes bright. He was somehow happy, not in the pleased and laughing way, but happy that the waiting was over and what had been ahead was here and seen and realized and he was ready for it. He put one hand on my head and rocked it gently, the fingers feeling through my hair. 
"'Bobby boy, would you have me run away?' Love for that man raced through me, and the warmth ran down and stiffened my legs, and I was so proud of being there with him that I could not keep the tears from my eyes. I could see the rightness of it, and I was ready to do as he told me when he said, "'Get out of here, Bob. This isn't going to be pretty.' but I would go no farther than my perch just inside the store, where I could watch most of the big room. I was so bound in the moment that I did not even think of running for father. Morgan was in the lead now, with his men spread out behind him. He came about half the way to Shane and stopped. The room was quiet, except for the shuffling of feet as the men by the bar and the nearest tables hastened over to the far wall, and some of them ducked out the front doors. Neither Shane nor Morgan gave any attention to them. They had attention only for each other. They did not look aside even when Mr. Grafton, who could smell trouble in his place from any distance, stalked in from the store, planting his feet down firmly, and pushed past Will Atke behind the bar. He had a resigned expression on his face, and he reached under the counter, his hands reappearing with a short-barreled shotgun. He laid it before him on the bar, and he said in a dry, disgusted voice, "'There will be no gunplay, gentlemen, and all damages will be paid for.' Morgan nodded curtly, not taking his eyes from Shane. He came closer and stopped again little more than an arm's length away. His head was thrust forward. His big fists were clenched at his sides. "'No one messes up one of my boys,' and gets away with it. We are riding you out of this valley on a rail, Shane. We're going to rough you a bit and ride you out, and you'll stay out. So you have it all planned, Shane said softly. Even as he was speaking, he was moving. He flowed into action so swift you could hardly believe what was happening. He scooped up his half-filled glass from the bar, whipped it and its contents into Morgan's face, and when Morgan's hands came up, reaching or striking for him, he grasped the wrists and flung himself backwards, dragging Morgan with him. His body rolled to meet the floor, and his legs doubled, and his feet, catching Morgan just below the belt, sent him flying on and over to fall flat in a grotesque spraddle, and slide along the boards in a tangle of chairs and a table. The other four were on Shane in a rush. As they came, he whirled to his hands and knees and leaped up and behind the nearest table, tipping it in a strong heave among them. They scattered, dodging, and he stepped fast and light around the end and drove into the tail man, one of the new men, now nearest to him. He took the blows at him straight on to get in close, and I saw his knees surge up and into the man's groin. A high scream was literally torn from the man, and he collapsed to the floor and dragged himself toward the doors. Morgan was on his feet, wavering, rubbing a hand across his face, staring hard as if trying to focus again on the room about him. The other three were battering at Shane, seeking to box him between them. They were piling blows into him, crowding in. Through that blur of movement, he was weaving, quick and confident. It was incredible but they could not hurt him. You could see the blows hit, hear the solid chunk of knuckles on flesh, 
but they had no effect. They seemed only to feed that fierce energy. He moved like a flame among them. He would burst out of the melee and whirl and plunge back, the one man actually pressing the three. He had picked the second new man and was driving always directly at him. Curly, slow and clumsy, grunting in exasperation, grabbed at Shane to grapple with him and hold down his arms. Shane dropped one shoulder, and as Curly hugged tighter, brought it up under his jaw with a jolt that knocked him loose and away. They were wary now, and none too eager to let him get close to any one of them. Then Red Marlin came at him from one side, forcing him to turn that way, and at the same time the second new man did a strange thing. He jumped high in the air, like a jackrabbit in a spy-hop, and lashed out viciously with one boot at Shane's head. Shane saw it coming, but could not avoid it, so he rolled his head with the kick, taking it along the side. It shook him badly, but it did not block the instant response. His hands shot up and seized the foot, and the man crashed down to land on the small of his back. As he hit, Shane twisted the whole leg and threw his weight on it. The man buckled on the floor like a snake when you hit it, and groaned sharply, and hitched himself away, the leg dragging, the fight gone out of him. But the swing to bend down on the leg had put Shane's back to Curly, and the big man was plowing at him. Curly's arms clamped around him, pinning his arms to his body. Red Marlin leaped to help, and the two of them had Shane caught tight between them. Hold him! That was Morgan, coming forward with the hate plain in his eyes. Even then, Shane would have broke away. He stomped one heavy work shoe, heel-edged and with all the strength he could get in quick leverage, on Curly's near foot. As Curly winced and pulled it back and was unsteady, Shane strained with his whole body in a powerful arch, and you could see their arms slipping and loosening. Morgan, circling in, saw it too. He swept a bottle off the bar and brought it smashing down from behind on Shane's head. Shane slumped and would have fallen if they had not been holding him. Then, as Morgan stepped around in front of him and watched, the vitality pumped through him and his head came up. Hold him, Morgan said again. He deliberately flung a huge fist to Shane's face. Shane tried to jerk aside and the fist missed the jaw tearing along the cheek, the heavy ring on one finger slicing deep. Morgan pulled back for another blow. He never made it. Nothing, I would have said, could have drawn my attention from those men. But I heard a kind of choking sob beside me, and it was queer and yet familiar, and it turned me instantly. Father was there in the entranceway. He was big and terrible, and he was looking across the overturned table and the scattered chairs at Shane, at the dark purplish bruise along the side of Shane's head and the blood running down his cheek. I had never seen father like this. He was past anger. He was filled with a fury that was shaking him, almost beyond endurance. I never thought he could move so fast. He was on them before they even knew he was in the room. 
he hurtled into Morgan with ruthless force, sending that huge man reeling across the room. He reached out one broad hand and grabbed Curly by the shoulder, and you could see the fingers sink into the flesh. He took hold of Curly's belt with the other hand and ripped him loose from Shane, and his own shirt shredded down the back, and the great muscles there knotted and bulged as he lifted Curly right up over his head and hurled the threshing body from him. Curly spun through the air, his limbs waving wildly, and crashed on the top of a table way over by the wall. It cracked under him, collapsing in splintered pieces, and the man and the wreckage smacked against the wall. Curly tried to rise, pushing himself with hands on the floor, and fell back and was still. Shane must have exploded into action the second father yanked Curly away, for now there was another noise. It was Red Marlin, his face contorted, flung against the bar and catching at it to keep himself from falling. He staggered and caught his balance and ran for the front doorway. His flight was frantic, headlong. He tore through the swinging doors without slowing to push them. They flapped with a swishing sound, and my eyes shifted quickly to Shane, for he was laughing. He was standing there, straight and superb, the blood on his face bright like a badge, and he was laughing. It was a soft laugh, soft and gentle, not in amusement at Red Marlin or any single thing, but in the joy of being alive and released from long discipline and answering the urge in mind and body. The lithe power in him, so different from father's sheer strength, was singing in every fiber of him. Morgan was in the rear corner, his face clouded and uncertain. Father, his fury eased by the mighty effort of throwing Curly, had looked around to watch Red Marlin's run, and now was starting toward Morgan. Shane's voice stopped him. Wait, Joe. The man's mine. He was at Father's side, and he put a hand on Father's arm. You'd better get them out of here. He nodded in my direction, and I noticed with surprise that Mother was near and watching. She must have followed Father and have been there all this while. Her lips were parted. Her eyes were glowing, looking at the whole room, not at anyone or anything in particular, but at the whole room. Father was disappointed. Morgan's more my size, he said, grumbling fashion. He was not worried about Shane. He was thinking of an excuse to take Morgan himself. But he went no further. He looked at the men over by the wall. This is Shane's play. If a one of you tries to interfere, he'll have me to reckon with. His tone showed that he was not mad at them, that he was not even really warning them. He was simply making the play plain. Then he came to us and looked down at Mother. You wait out at the wagon, Marion. Morgan's had this coming to him for quite a long time now, and it's not for a woman to see. Mother shook her head without moving her eyes now from Shane. No, Joe, he's one of us. I'll see this through. And the three of us stayed there together, and that was right, for he was Shane. He advanced toward Morgan, as flowing and graceful as the old mouser in the store. 
He had forgotten us and the battered men on the floor and those withdrawn by the wall and Mr. Grafton and Will Atke crouched behind the bar. His whole being was concentrated on the big man before him. Morgan was taller, half again as broad, with a long reputation as a bullying fighter in the valley. But he did not like this, and he was desperate. He knew better than to wait. He rushed at Shane to overwhelm the smaller man with his weight. Shane faded from in front of him, and as Morgan went past, hooked a sharp blow to his stomach and another to the side of his jaw. They were short and quick, flicking in so fast they were just a blur of movement. Yet each time at the instant of impact, Morgan's big frame shook and halted in its rush for a fraction of a second, before the momentum carried him forward. Again and again he rushed, driving his big fists ahead. Always Shane slipped away, sending in those swift, hard punches. Breathing heavily, Morgan stopped, grasping the futility of straight fighting. He plunged at Shane now, arms wide, trying to get hold of him and wrestle him down. Shane was ready, and let him come without dodging, disregarding the arms stretching to encircle him. He brought up his right hand, open, just as Ed Howells had told us, and the force of Morgan's own lunge as the hand met his mouth and raked upwards, snapped back his head, and sent him staggering. Morgan's face was puffy and red-mottled. He bellowed some insane sound and swung up a chair. Holding it in front of him, legs forward, he rushed again at Shane, who sidestepped neatly. Morgan was expecting this, and halted suddenly, swinging the chair in a swift arc to strike Shane with it full on the side. The chair shattered, and Shane faltered, and then, queerly for a man usually so sure on his feet, he seemed to slip and fall to the floor. Forgetting all caution, Morgan drove at him, and Shane's legs bent and he caught Morgan on his heavy work shoes and sent him flying back and against the bar with a crash that shook the whole length of it. Shane was up and leaping at Morgan as if there had been springs under him there on the floor. His left hand, palm out, smacked against Morgan's forehead, pushing the head back, and his right fist drove straight to Morgan's throat. You could see the agony twist the man's face and the fear widen his eyes. And Shane, using his right fist now like a club and lining his whole body behind it, struck him on the neck below and back of the ear. It made a sickening, dull sound, and Morgan's eyes rolled white, and he went limp all over, sagging slowly and forward to the floor.' 